page fright is recorded on the traditional unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Page Fright. My name is Andrew French. I'm on Twitter at TheAndrewFrench. And of course, this is the only literary podcast that I host. I am excited to have you back for another episode. Um, as you can tell if you look back at the log of episodes, uh, this is episode 42, and it's been two weeks since episode 41. Uh, so it's nice to be back behind a microphone. And today I am here chatting with Aslan Hunter. Uh, We'll jump into that interview in a second, but I just wanted to kind of say a few things about the book that we're chatting about today. So um, I've had a chance to talk to some really, really cool poets, and today is no exception. I am talking to a poet, Um, but this poet, Aslan Hunter, is also a novelist, and she wrote a novel called The Certainties that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, Before we jump into the interview, though, I just wanted to say that I am very, very grateful for Aslan's um, taking the time to chat with me today about this book. Um, It's been a minute since I spoke with Aslan, um, but she was one of the first people I interviewed for the show. I think she agreed to do an episode before I had even put out the first episode. So uh, if you haven't listened to episode six and you want to hear Aslan be incredibly generous to a new interviewer, um, that would be a good episode to listen to. Uh, I really enjoyed chatting with Aslan, catching up with her after reading The Certainties. Um, so if you know me, you know I like to read poetry, and reading a novel was a little out of my wheelhouse. I talk a little bit about how that uh, experience went for me as a reader in this episode. If you haven't read The Certainties, okay, um, you can, you can definitely read it before you listen to this episode. Or if you're like, I don't know if this book is for me, uh, like, let's find out a little bit more about it. Listen to this episode. I tried to make it as accessible to somebody who hasn't read the book as possible. I essentially told Aslan what her book was about right at the start of the interview, uh, which was a very weird experience. Um, so, and, and she kind of corrects me here and there and helps me out with, with getting that description across. So if you haven't read the book, we're going to tell you what it's about anyway. Um, but The Certainties is a spectacular novel that you need to check out. Um, it was great to catch up with a writer who was so kind to me at the beginning of my page fright career. Uh, and uh, if you're unfamiliar with Aslan and you haven't listened to that sixth episode um, before, and maybe you don't want to for some reason, uh, let me give you Aslan's bio just before we jump into the interview. So... Aslan Hunter is an award-winning novelist and poet and the author of seven, seven highly acclaimed books, including the novel The World Before Us, which was a New York Times Editor's Choice book, a Guardian and NPR Book of the Year, and a winner of the Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. Her work has been adapted into music, dance, art, and film forms, including a feature film based on her novel Stay, which premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival, Hunter holds degrees in creative writing, art history, writing and cultural politics, and English literature. In 2018, she served as a Canadian war artist, working with Canadian and NATO forces at CFB Suffield. She teaches creative writing part-time and lives in Vancouver, BC. Here she is returning to Page Fright, and here I am chatting with Aslan Hunter.
I am chatting again today. Uh, it's been a long time, but I am so excited to have Aslan Hunter back on the podcast. Aslan, how's it going? It's, well, you know, uh, pandemic quality <laughs> lifestyle. I don't want to yes. pretend that it's all hunky-dory, but, uh, you know, I'm feeling lucky and full of gratitude for the good things. Yeah. Yeah, and there seem to be, I don't know, a lot of good things going on, at least uh, in the literary world, as we kind of transition to existing online. There's been a lot of like online readings and stuff, and I'm sure um, you, in promoting this book that we're going to talk about today, have experienced a lot of the uh, nuances of the online literary world. Um, But yeah, I am so excited to talk about that book. I'm just going to plug it right away. It's called The Certainties. Um, I'm almost a little late, I think, in jumping on the Certainties bandwagon um, in that I didn't get to interview you right when it came out. It's never too late. Um, (laughs) That's good to hear. I'm glad. Um, I, as you may know, um, but certainly people who've like listened to this show a bunch will know, I'm not a novel person. Um, Prose terrifies me in so many ways. Um, and this is a novel that we're talking about today. And Aslan's also wrote poetry, um, and written in a bunch of different genres and things that we talked about. I think it was episode six of the show. If you haven't listened yet, maybe go and take a listen. But, um, I wanted to mention right off the top, I was a little out of my comfort zone reading a novel, but I really enjoyed it and got into it by the end. And we can talk about what that looked like, um, as we kind of get into the interview, but to kick things off. For people who might not be familiar with your work, could I get you to read a passage from the novel or a piece from somewhere else or something of your work for us? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I, I'm going to read not quite from the very first pages, um, but I, I'm going to read just a little section um, where my protagonist, who's a 50-year-old um, academic in 1940, a man uh, fleeing Paris in the wake of the German advance into Paris. So he's a... Uh, He's escaped through um, the south of France and over the Pyrenees, and he's now in northern Spain under house arrest. Um, But the day before he goes, uh, uh, he's placed under house arrest in a hotel. He he sees an art gallery in this um, Spanish uh, town called Port Bou. And um, this is in 1940, so the Spanish Civil War has just uh, decimated the hearts and minds and souls of of the people. And he, of course, is a refugee escaping uh, war. So I'll just read you a a little bit because I like, uh, my first degree was art history and I always write a little bit about art. So I thought that I would um, read this section. All right, here we go. As I turned toward the hotel, I saw a large painting hanging in a window in the corner of the square. I walked toward it. Above an unassuming doorway, the words Galleria Navarro were lettered in gold. There was a sign on the door indicating that the gallery was open, a surprise under the circumstances. In France, all the galleries, large and small, were shuttered, and most art of value had been sent into cellars or into the holds of ships. The painting was of a landscape with a white horse in the middle of it. Not a horse with evidence of muscle and sinew as Jericho or Delacroix would have it, but rather the expression of a white horse, a ghostly figure with her head down to the grass, a gray whorl for an eye, standing against darkly outlined trees and a green register of field. 
the moon in the upper right-hand corner, full and bright. In the bottom corner of the painting, the date, 1901, was inscribed sternly in red. Inside, the gallery consisted of a single room with no furniture and no counters, just four white walls hung with a half dozen works on either side of a curtained doorway, which likely led to a storage area or private quarters. There was a long crack across the room ceiling, and this crack, like the bomb blasts and bullet holes in the nearby building's fascia and the rubble by the station, spoke to the fact that war had come to this place, too, dug its claws in. The gallery's paintings were mostly landscapes, each an expression fattened by color and line. The work spoke to me of that period of pastoral idealism in Germany at the turn of the century, when a number of artists rejected the academy and set up a colony in the woods so that they could be in the world they painted. I stopped before each work, aware that this was a style that would be somewhat safe to display now, given that the men who might walk through the door could be corrupt Spanish officials, or legitimate buyers getting rich off post-Civil War corruption, or German intelligence agents. I thought then that I should leave, that I was a trespasser, like someone who enters a bookstore, only to discover that the books for sale are in a language the individual no longer speaks. Very cool. Thank you for reading that. Um, I always find it so interesting to hear people read their own work. Um, and this was no exception. It's so nice to hear it in your voice instead of the voice in my head. Um, and yeah, I wanted to, I guess, just mention right off the top as I kind of did there. Um, prose isn't normally something I read, but I found this book so interesting. Uh, and I was re-listening to um, the episode we recorded previously this morning in preparation for interviewing you today. And you mentioned when I asked you the, probably the most difficult question I can ask, which is to describe your writing style. Um, you described your writing style in one of the sentences as writing love letters to time. And what a brilliant way of describing somebody's writing style and reading this novel. I think this totally fits. And we talked a bunch last time too, about um, kind of how there's uh, a focus on what it means to be and the idea of being in your work. And that comes through here too, and is very much perpetuated by the kind of philosopher protagonist that we see um, half of the book through. Um, at least one side of the story is told from that perspective. Um, so I guess I have a lot of questions about this book. Um, but I suppose the first thing that I'll ask is what inspired you to write The Certainties? Where did the idea for this book come from? Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny about the germinating idea theory. I think sometimes like the, the idea that you can say, and then I had the idea to do whatever. Um, you know, I, I feel like that's constantly discounted. I just went back today to, um, I'm writing a long poem, like a book length poem right now. And I wanted to find something in one of my old journals. And, uh, and I thought, God, I've been writing about grief for so long now, like my first journal, the first page, that's like, it's a note about grief. And I didn't, you know, I wasn't in grief then. I, I just thought how incredible to open up this book. I have it right here, my first journal. And the first line is the cemetery in Montparnasse, right? And I'm describing mm. a cemetery. So I was thinking, wow, how long have I been 
circling the, the, the dead, I guess. And so one of the things that I wanted intellectually to do with this book was, you know, my original concept, which I suppose is, of course, you know, always your failed concept. I wanted to write a love story between two dead people who'd never met. And so I had this idea about an, an intellect, um, you know, who left journals and uh, a radio a broadcaster, a journalist, a witness who had also died. And I wanted somehow their texts to correspond with each other, like her voice recordings and his um, philosophical musings. And I guess you can see an iteration of that, uh, like a, a faint trace of that in the book with Pia's mother being a journalist and having left voice recordings and the protagonist, you know, having written essays and leaving these, um, his ideas in text. Um, but, it, but in the end, it's, it's a different kind of love story. I think it's like a, it's a love story to those things that keep us alive until we decide that life is no longer, you know, worth living. She said depressingly. <laughs> <laughs> it is depressing, but it's, it's also, uh, you know, it's deep and it's, it's true. This is one of the things that um, is being considered in in this book, I think most importantly is the idea of what is worth living in life and what about life you know qualifies as living um, and that that seems to be uh, something that the main character, the protagonist there is um, sort of working through as well as Pia. And so if you're listening and you haven't read the book, um, which you should, and this episode might make more sense if you do, but, um, even if you haven't, we'll make it accessible. Um, if you haven't read the book, um, Pia is another character in the text who essentially passes the protagonist. I mean, I'm explaining the book to its author right now. Maybe I should ask you to do this. No, um, I'm loving it. But, I'm loving it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Pia is a, a child at the time when she passes the protagonist who is at a cafe, um, and we then uh, sort of flash back and forth between Pia's life, I believe in, it seems like the 70s or 80s, like a little bit later. Um, and we flash between that and the protagonist's experience, which you mentioned was kind of in the 40s. Um, and between their two situations, both approaching the idea of living and, and what constitutes living in life, uh, as well as death in various ways based on the ways that their life is carried out or being carried out. Again, it feels so weird to be explaining this to the person who wrote the book. So please jump in and let me know where I'm wrong there. That was how I read it anyway. Uh, that's no. my summary for the listener. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, you're perfect. So we have our unnamed protagonist in 1940 uh, in Northern Spain, meet a young girl who's five years old, have a brief encounter, super brief. And then they remember each other uh, the rest of their days. And, and exactly, they're both refugees of a kind. Um, Pia ends up uh, on a 1980s kind of Atlantic island where another refugee situation happens. But I mean, I think for the, for the careful reader, and I, I often tend to write books, you can read two ways, kind of, not often. All of my novels can be read two ways. And I think that it's interesting because, you know, some readers want a certain kind of story. And I think you can almost read the ending that you want into the book. But in this case, the 1980s island and Pia are, are couched in very allegorical terms. So there's a strong possibility that in fact, it's just him imagining the future. So that it's like a, it's a work of historical fiction in which someone in 1940 imagines what the world will be like in 1980 and takes this young girl he meets and projects her 
life into the future as a kind of legacy, you know, toward toward going on. So, so that was one of my other little, you know, uh, kind of dorky writer things. I was like, I want to write historical speculative fiction. That'll be cool. Um, <laughs> so yeah, but I, but you don't have to read it that way. And I think for you know a number of readers and people I've spoken to. Um, it reads as if this is Pia's life. And, and I don't think it's a spoiler to say that. I think it makes the book more interesting to see all those hinges where um, either reading uh, could could feel true. But I think it does, you know, one of the things about grief and, and you know, not to put too fine a point on it, certainly I didn't anticipate the pandemic or COVID or the despondency that this year has brought uh, to us engaged, caring human beings on so many levels. I mean, this book wasn't predictive uh, in any sense of the word, but there is a strong sense in the book of so many of those griefs that we're facing, like people distancing from each other, distrusting each other, not not feeling safe uh, in the world, um, you know, and and having to constantly reaffirm the good things, you know, that make it all worth um, bearing. And uh, and so I think and having to to witness without flinching the things that we don't necessarily want to see, you know, whether that's the debate, uh, you know, in the election down south or the um, you know, reports coming from countries where the pandemic is raging. I mean, these are equally, um, maybe not equally, it's never a, a kind of com comparable kind of thing, but these are also really difficult times. And, uh, and, and so I think this book is about that tension between being aware and witnessing and also reaffirming those things that aren't directly in front of you at the time, at that point in time in history. Mm -hmm. And it's it's almost a different kind of attentiveness then, um, like looking for something to reaffirm the positive. And, and that seems to be uh, one of the things that one of the characters, the protagonist in this book is looking for, among actually many of the characters in the book are probably looking for that sort of attentiveness, that seeking out of, of affirmation. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you, or maybe that I didn't want to ask you, but my last guest has a question for you. Um, so I do this thing where I bring questions in from the last guest to the next, and I'll ask you for a question at the end of the episode. Um, but, uh, my last guest is wondering how other languages influence your work or if other languages influence your work. And in this text, uh, it looks as if they do. So I'm interested to hear your response. Yeah. You know, I mean, un unfortunately, um, I'm not good at languages and, um, and I just, I, and I still feel like for me, the English language is this, um, trough of like gifts and mysteries that, you know, that, that I just, you know, spend all this time in and, it, you know, it keeps presenting me with surprises. Um, and so part of the, the interesting conceit of a book like this is really that, no, no one is much speaking English, and yet the whole book is told in English. So my protagonist is German. Uh, the other two protagonists in his timeline are French speakers. Pia is um, South American born, but uh, Spanish speaking, uh, has lived in Spain. You know, so so it it is interesting to imagine or to try to conceptualize other ways of thinking. I mean, I know enough from reading about languages that languages aren't just different word choices. It's different ways of conceptualizing our relationship to the 
to earth, to space, to each other, um, you know, to emotional um, concepts like languages are, are ontology. I mean, they're who we are. And, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I think in some ways the language moments here where people are speaking German or French or, um, you know, I think that it's, um, I think that it's more superficial than informative. Like, I think it's, it's an affect of, of the global reality. I mean, there's that line in the, in the first paragraph where the protagonist says, when we are dead, we will no longer know our nations. And so I think that the, like the, the heart that I went into this book with was to say that aside from all these differences and concepts and ways of seeing the, the world and our points in time and history and our religious orientation and our, um, you know, which side of, of the war we're standing on, that fundamentally the end end result for all human beings is an erasure of, of those uh, differences. So I loved playing with some of the concepts around language. I liked talking about that game where my protagonist's father, you know, would be in the souks uh, as an engineer, um, you know, in a North African country. And there was this game they would play where they would look at his appearance and try to guess what language he was to try to sell things to him in that language, which happened to my husband and I when we were in Tunisia. You know, every you know everyone would start speaking what language they they thought that you were. He always got Dutch, and everyone just looked at me and spoke English, <laughs> which I thought was really funny. Glenn Glenn Scottish, but uh, but yeah. So you know, I liked thinking about the global, but also you know trying to move past differences to to find that chord of humanity that is the same. Yeah, and I this is something that came up too in the book then um, that reminded me when I was asked this question, I, I did this interview um, to, to be transparent, your question came from Sadika Demare, um, who I had on the show on Tuesday. So like pretty recently. Um, we're recording this a little bit in advance, it won't be out for a couple of weeks, but um, when she asked the question, I was just finishing up um, rereading the certainties and uh, went through the portion of the book. It's close to the end, but I don't think spoils much, uh, if anything, where the protagonist is picking up a translation of Ovid uh, and reading Ovid in, in a translation from, I believe, Middle English or to Middle English, I think from Middle English to uh, their language. And um notices new things although they've been studying Ovid all their life and and been and reading Ovid so frequently um they're noticing new things from this new translation from a different language and so this kind of popped into my head that specific scene when I was asked that question um about I don't know 48 hours ago um <laughs> I was just thinking immediately of that scene so I thought I'd bring that up I thought that was cool it was also one of my favorite scenes um, and I thought it was very interesting. Um, and I think you're totally right, though. We don't notice too a lot of it. I don't speak other languages, um, at least not well. I know a couple of words here and there, but it's nothing crazy. And I think it's so easy to take for granted how complicated the way that uh, languages see the world differently is. And I, I love that you're bringing that up there. Yeah, you know, when I was doing my PhD work, I was reading uh, like I want to say all the Heidegger felt like I read all the Heidegger <laughs> and um, you know, the translations, I was obviously reading Heidegger in English and uh, like the, the ample paragraphs on just the translation of a word and how the translators had to flatten it for English, but how in German it had all of these dynamics. I mean, that, that level of 
that interstice between my language and another language where I'm reading a translator or, you know, even in the Russian or, you know, uh, you know, if you're reading Tolstoy in translation, I, I love hearing how that, um, you know, interlocutor is, is giving us um, this bridge to, to another set of beliefs or, um, or assumptions. But also, you know what, I think that we forget, or not that we forget, I think it's just we don't often, as writers especially, speak about the ownership that a reader is entitled to take on um, a book. And, and so I think we sometimes, you know, in this unfortunately um, commodified culture we live in where a book is a thing and not a gift and it's a product and it's for sale and it's, you know, consumed. I, I, I think in that model of things, sometimes that we, we lose that it's actually a gift exchange between minds and that the, the reader is a, a, a huge part of the you know, participating uh, exchange. And, uh, you know, for writers, we sometimes get the gift of that, like you talking to me about my book um, and how you read it. So now it's our book. Um, but I think that language, <laughs> languages are like that too, that, that um, you know, the conversations between the speakers and about, um, about that, that um, entity in the middle, which is translation or which is, a word that means one thing in one language and something else in another. I mean, that's where so much I think of, of the excitement is and so many of the potential truths or deeper meanings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's so much to language that I wish I knew more about. Um, I have tried to learn other languages. I get nowhere with it. I'm horrible with it. But I find it so fascinating reading translations and thinking that one day I could be able to translate something um, what a fun idea. I would love to actually talk to a translator. If somebody's listening and you translate books, uh, please reach out to me because I'd love to talk to you. Um, we're probably about halfway through our interview. Uh, I'm wondering if we could get you to give us another reading from the book. Yeah, yeah. I have, um, I'll read a little section from the Pia section um, that takes place in a, in a kitchen, uh, just because I, I think that... Um, for a book that is in many ways a pretty heavy book, there's a lot of um, tenderness toward uh, the comforts, the food and the wine and things like that. So um, Pia is a sous chef uh, in the 1980s on this Atlantic island. And um, uh, she's uh, preparing a meal uh, in her kitchen at this hotel on a cliff for um, a wedding celebration. And, um, so this is just a little scene um, from there. The entremetier and porter come into the kitchen while Pia is checking off the deliveries. Sometimes the staff listens to the radio, but today the reception is staticky, so they work in silence. The entremetier is shucking oysters, hunching over the counter to do his knife work because he's so tall. Pia picks one of the shucked oysters from its bed of ice and places it in her mouth to test its quality. The entremetier studies her face. The oyster is good, typical of the island variety, a slightly brackish taste, the mantle firm on her tongue. She dips a spoon into the mignote he's made, says, watch the salt, these have more. And here Pia's brain stutters over the word for salmuera. She closes her eyes, repeats somewhere, and sees herself as a child wobble a spoonful of muscle up to her mouth under her mother's sharp gaze. Brine, she says eventually, and the ridges of her mouth flick up in a smile. 
When Pia was a child in the village by the sea, food was simple. The signature of the soil or slant of sun on the ripe tomato was what gave a soup or a salad its bright acidity. The broth served with mussels was the flavor of the mussels themselves. Pia was 10 when the family moved back to her mother's country, to the large city where her grandmother still lived. There they ate a variety of mussels that were meatier and fuller than the ones Pia was used to, served with a broth of onion, parsley, and hot pepper. For her, it was as if a melody had been added to music she thought she knew. Pia's grandmother, her abuela, was a fierce woman. Eat, 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 she would say. Stop staring at your food. The old woman sometimes mimed eating as she said this, as if suspicious the girl's comprehension was poor. Then she'd give up and glare at Pia's mother, who could usually be found sitting on the kitchen counter smoking a cigarette or at the long oak table in the dining room reading the newspaper. So skinny, Pia's abuela would say. She fusses over everything. But Pia ate slowly, only to stretch out the time, hoping her mother and her abuela would gossip. Oh, my neighbor, he this, he that, and so-and-so across the street is pregnant, and why don't you have another? And where are you going now for work? And when will you be back? And is it safe? Pia pulls a bucket of basil from the walk-in and takes it to the sink. If she closes her eyes, she can remember the first time she tasted basil in Arbuela's city garden, two plants springing out of the earth beside unhappy-looking tomatoes. Pia is like a woman in the famine this way always thinking about food. Very cool. Um, I have to ask a question that completely shows how little I know about uh, writing prose. And so I am so interested in different writing styles and it's not something I know a ton about because I really kind of came into creative writing and honestly into reading for fun through poetry. Um, and so, so much of what I know and think about is, is poetry. Um, but when I was reading this novel, and I think this is likely because it is genuinely impressive to me to read, uh, this specific novel, but it could also be that this is a general trait of novels. I was blown away by how much was going on and how much had been thought out and how much was happening in what is really a very short span of time in this story. Um, and so... All of this to lead me to the question of, I know you've written in other forms before as well. So what does a novel like this require that uh, from a writer that that writing, say, you mentioned you were writing a book length poem. Um, how is that different from from writing a novel and approaching a novel? Yeah, you know, the, the one of the reasons that I, I go back and forth between a novel and a book of poems, you know, and have over the last eight books done that consistently. I think, you know, the novel is such a, it's such a marathon. It's such a long race with, with very little rest and no, you know, for me in, in my writing process, very few victories uh, in the sense of feeling like, okay, you know, oh, wow, I did some good work there. Um, whereas poetry, you know, if you, if you write a fresh simile or evoke something particularly well in a stanza, it's like, it's like a rest, you know, it's like you understand that you are doing the thing, like you, you are um, in good relation with your topic. But I think for me with a novel, I never see that good relation until the end. Um, 
But you know, I was I was asking my I teach um, right now at, at SFU's writer's studio uh, in uh, both grad classes and a and a just a short class in the regular program, as well as teaching at, at KPU as a faculty member in the writing department. But I was asking some SFU students. I said, how many times? you know, on Zoom, I said, can you put in the chat box how many times you think you will read your novel from start to finish before it's done? Like how many times? And uh, no one, no one said, someone said 100, which I thought was great. Someone said 10. <laughs> I was hoping they dropped to zero by accident. But, but I said, I've, you know, by the time my novel is in the world, I've read it thousands of times from start to finish. You know, if you count yeah. reading the first eighth and then reading the second eighth as, you know, one reading and then another first reading. So I've read it thousands of times. And uh, and so for me, it's just that onerous work of paring away and trying to do that world making that is just enough, but not too much. Interesting. So this is kind of what I thought it would be like and I again like I don't have experience doing this so I genuinely don't know which is probably why I'm so fascinated um but I like the idea of thinking of a marathon uh, or a novel as a marathon um I think like I don't have a ton of writing experience but from my brief experience uh I think maybe what I find so rewarding about poems or interesting to me about writing poems is that it is like speedy and, and it feels like quick gratification if you finish a poem it feels like that item is done, even if it's part of a larger collection. Um, I can't imagine what it would be like writing a book length poem. I've never done that. Um, but writing shorter poems, you know, if you write one in a couple of sittings or even if it takes quite a while, you can tick off boxes, like you said, and say, oh, I created a new simile here. And that is the product of your work that you can see. But I think if I was writing a novel, and again, I haven't done that, so I don't know. But if I was writing one, I think I would be struggling at times to find that kind of output and, and see like, oh, that is the thing that I created when I sat down today. Um, and that sounds like what would put me off. Maybe it is what puts me off of writing prose and what scares me about it. Um, well, this maybe is a good point. Like, I was sorry? just going to say that, I was just going to say that um, to kind of another way to look at it is um, I think in best words, best order, uh, Stephen Dobbins was saying, he was talking about graduate level writing students and how um, the farther along you, you get in your writing, the more difficult writing becomes. Like when, when you're first starting out, it's easy and everything is possible. And then all of a sudden you, you get caught up in all the things you can't do. But he also said that that when we write fiction, we're hiding from the world. Like we live in the world of our imagination. And when we write poetry, we're deeply engaged with the world. And so, you know, I think part of my turning to poetry and part of what makes poetry so satisfying is because you are very deeply in relation with the world, I think. You know, it's I, I don't think of poetry as... Um, being something that lives in the back of your head, you know, I think of it as, you know, for me anyway, something that lives, uh, you know, in in all of your body as you're moving uh, through the the environment of the world, you know, and through relationships with other people. So that maybe maybe there's a part of novel writing that is reclusive that is also unappealing. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I think I'm also just terrified of writing something so long. It seems so hard to me. I don't know. Um, but I was going to ask too, because I'm interested as somebody who's kind of starting out as a writer, um, what genre or form were you kind of drawn to when you were first starting writing? 
Hmm. Yeah, I was um, speaking the other. Somebody asked what book you know made me a writer, and I said um, by Grand Central Station. I sat down and wept by Elizabeth Smart. I just I, I remember practically cleaving that novella to my chest and being like, "This is what's possible. <laughs> this is," and uh, and I mean her work, that novella, tiny little novella really is the, you know, the meeting of poetry and, and, and prose. You know, I feel it is as much, um, you know, a work of, of poetic art in terms of figurative language as it is a work of, of prose. So even though I don't write novellas, I mean, I, I, one of my first uh, publications was stories and a novella. And in fact, the novella was a generational response to by Grand Central Station, I sat down and wept. So the mother's named Elizabeth and it's like meant to be a generational response. So clearly influenced me. But yeah, you know, I think my true love is poetry. And I, and I think one of the things, you know, that makes my novels not easily digestible in, in or, or less easily digestible than a, a true prose writer's work might be is that you know, I am always trying to get the the philosophy in. I'm always trying to get that second level of meaning or feeling in underneath the, you know, the surface level. And uh, and hopefully I tread, you know, carefully enough that, you know, it's not required that you read the book twice or that you read it slowly and make notes in the margins. But but I think it's that I'm a, I'm fundamentally, uh, you know, a poet. I think, um, <laughs> I think also I wanted to mention um, just a small anecdote, I suppose, and less of a question, but you mentioned there that you were hoping it wasn't the case that people were stopping all the time while reading the novel and making notes in the margins and such. So I picked up this book and immediately had a pen in my hand and started underlining lines I liked and making notes. Um, and that lasted probably 15 to 20 pages. And then I just got taken away and was like, fully engrossed by this story like I was fully into the book um so I don't know that that was necessarily the case for me like I started out looking for things and finding them everywhere um but then I think part of the reason why I read it a second time before we chatted was that I wanted to go back and do this kind of highlighting and looking for things and adding marginalia and all of this um that I didn't do on the first reading because I was so taken away by the story um, and, and that was part of, I guess, why I enjoyed the book so much, I think, is that I could just come back to this. And like you mentioned, it was kind of like almost in the back of the mind, like almost a, a way to escape from all of the craziness that's going on right now. Um, and obviously, like you said, too, you know, you didn't know that we were going to have a global pandemic and all of these things going on. But and I don't know if this is unfortunate or not, I don't know, but it certainly makes the book very relatable right now, some of the characters in the book anyway, um, where, where it feels like uh, the things that they are looking for and the attention that they are paying to the world seems to reflect much of the way that I'm thinking and, and it seems the people around me are thinking just as a product of the time that we're in right now. Um, so I guess a couple of things that I'm saying there, not really questions, but notes, um, giving notes to the author of the book. That's right. You're good at that. You, you're doing great. Yeah. No, I, I think that's true. I mean, I, you know, I've been doing a number of readings now and, uh, you know, reading, uh, you know, through Zoom at a writer's festival and thinking about 
the disconnect and and uh, the world that we're living in, I've been surprised by some of the segments that I've been reading, thinking like, wow, this part also speaks to the time, uh, you know, and uh, and yeah, just feeling that, um, yeah, that that uh, dissonance, right? The struggle, and then yeah. you know the breakdown of our social and cultural norms. That's fundamentally what a lot of I think our grief is about, and people. Yeah, losing their jobs or having to work uh, to the bone because they're a healthcare worker and stuff like that. Like, really, there is we're in a state of emergency, and and uh, and not the future is uncertain. And I think all of that is weighing on us. For sure, for sure. Um, we are unfortunately slowly approaching. We still have some time, but slowly approaching the end of the episode. And so I need to get a question from you for my next guest. It can be about literally anything, literary or otherwise. Um, but is there anything you're wondering that an author might be able to answer for you? Yeah, I'm, I'm always interested in hearing other writers speak about um, how physical locations, how place informs their writing, in a, not in a, in a conceptual way, but as an actual location. Like how does place, how does the setting inform or shape the work when it's a real Ooh. like when you're in it yeah yeah and the, I you might remember that I did this probably the first time that we did an interview but I do that thing where I turn the question around and now I ask you uh oh, I so forgot. how does place <laughs> yeah how does place uh and setting influence the way that you're thinking through your work and, and creating your work ah good you're so smart to do that um and mean <laughs> Yeah, no, you know what? I I um, have found myself again in recent conversations saying that I still believe place is more important than character as a shaping and informing uh, entity, uh, being, place as being. And so, yeah, for me, you know, I'm coming to witness place. I, I'm, I'm trying to be someone in the world who isn't moving through a space, but who is a participant uh, or a witness to the places that I am inhabiting. And so in that, in that way, um, I'm trying to let the, the being of a place speak to me, you know, or sometimes in poetry, literally if something, if a branch falls off a tree, I put that in the poem, right? So it's, it's this idea I learned from a, a New Zealand uh, poet, uh, Stuart Cook, where he talks about writing with place and, uh, yeah, so for me, I'm trying to integrate place in a more um, intuitive and kind of active way uh, in my writing and especially in my new uh, long poem. Interesting. I am doing a very similar thing. I started talking about it a little bit in the last episode, so people might get tired of hearing about it. But I started walking recently, like to write. Uh, and this mm. isn't a thing I normally do, but trying to kind of like pay attention to the things that I see around me and the spaces that I'm going through um, and pay kind of a mindful attention to all of these things. Um, and I was just uh, speaking of Zoom readings at, I believe it was a Word Vancouver reading um, and it featured some of my favorite people. It was uh, Betsy Warland was one of the readers and Alex Leslie and it was hosted by Rob Taylor. Um, and I believe Trevor Carolyn was the other reader as well. Um, and they were talking about I want to say it was like the poetics of space or something like that. And I'm going to repurpose my question that I asked in that reading for you, uh, because I'm interested now that we're talking about it. Um, what is kind of like, what are the things that you're looking for when you enter a new space? 
if you're going to write about it? What, what are kind of the things that you focus on and try to pay attention to if there is anything? Yeah. So, I mean, on a, on a kind of like, a, <laughs> I, I want to say like a predatory writerly level, you know, I'm looking for the names of things. I'm looking for stuff I can take away and put into my book. Like a, my new long poem is set in Trieste. So I have all kinds of notes about the trees or the building materials. So I'm, I'm like naming, uh, you know, uh, to, to bring authority to, to what I'm writing. But, you know, Heidegger's idea about things is that there are things like anything, like a jug or a vase, we have concepts of that thing, that's half of it. But Heidegger says that all things have a giveness or a givenness where they are exuding themselves. And so it's not that we, it's not that our concepts should ride roughshod over everything. It's that things themselves are always already giving out into the world. So I, I had tried to get rid of my concepts and, uh, and to just be open and attentive to, to new forms of seeing, um, of receiving, really. It's, it's about receiving. I mean, the world is going on without us all the time. And, uh, and so it's really, yeah, about being a witness to those things I might overlook. And I guess getting beyond that language phase of things. Like, you know, I remember reading years ago, Indigenous people, um, this was Joseph Campbell talking about language, and he said, you know, refer to the trees uh, in their uh, in their environment as thou instead of tree. It's, there's a thouness. And so I try to be a person in the world who, not just in organic landscapes, but also respects all the infrastructures that have come up in the world and try to receive information even in urban or suburban uh, settings rather than, you know, map my mind on top of everything. This is so interesting. I You used the term always already, and that threw me back to like the one philosophy course I took in university. Uh, it was it was a weird throw for me. Um, but, but yeah, um, unfortunately, we, unfortunately, we are reaching the end of our episode. Um, so I'm wondering if I can get you to read one last reading for us. Yeah, yeah. I have a tiny little um, section uh, that I guess just is speaking um, about art. So and, and thank you, Andrew. You're always um, so generous and intelligent and uh, curious. And I admire those qualities uh, very much. Well, so you. this is uh, you're welcome. This is my protagonist um, who goes to sit uh, with his friend Bernard, who's an artist. After I've rested, I go to sit with Bernard in his room. He's standing by the balcony when I enter, looking toward the sea, just as I've been doing most of the day. Again, I note how much weight he's lost, his trousers baggy, belt cinched tightly, brown sweater hanging like a sack. When he turns to me, I see that he's smoking, and this makes me happy for him, that he can choose certain activities for himself. I've been thinking about Salome, I say. The red mare? Bernard laughs and eases himself into a chair by the balcony railing. He'd come up with this endearment after he'd started painting her in Paris well before the war. The painting was a commission from her father, which was Salome's way of giving Bernard money without it appearing to be a handout. I saw the painting once in its early stages, Salome in a black and cream kimono draping ever so slightly off her shoulder, an oriental vase filled with poppies on the table beside her. 
He burned the painting later, as I recall, believing it to be derivative. Bernard takes a drag from a cigarette and blows the smoke toward the open sky. Last I heard, she was with that Russian she'd taken up with in Trieste. I lean on the railing and look toward the mountain, a darkening outline against a dusky sky. Below us, grape pickers coming off the hillside terraces are making their way home. Do you remember her friend, Bernard asks, the painter who was working on bowls of fruit, only bowls of fruit? Bernard peers gently into my face, brows furrowed, his eyes lively. Not even a bottle of claret, I asked him. No draping cloth, no vase. What of the onion, the dead-eyed fish? Bernard laughs. Where's your rooster, I asked. Bernard brings his cigarette to his lips, inhales, inspects the cinders before exhaling. He was right, of course, which we all knew. The wood bowl, the wood table, three or four oranges, their dimpled skin. And Giorgio, that was his name, wasn't it? Too arrogant to even paint us a window. Bernard laughs and then tries to mask a cough. What would you paint here? I ask, gesturing to the cove of Port Boo, the sea tapping the shore, the headlands heavy as bookends. That's like me asking you what you'd write. I love it. Thank you very much for reading for me and for coming on the show again. It's so great to catch up with you and talk about this new book. Um, guys, the book is called The Certainties. It is out now. Um, I am late getting to it, so it is very available. Uh, and it is by our lovely guest, Aslan Hunter. Aslan, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thank you, Andrew. Take good care. Well, there you have it. That was me chatting with Aslan Hunter. Um, I had a really good time chatting with Aslan, and it's really cool to listen back to that interview now. It's been almost two weeks since I interviewed Aslan, um, to give you a little bit of a transparent look behind the scenes here. Um, and it's nice to, to think back about this book again and revisit it in my head. Um, I really did enjoy reading it, although it was a novel which terrified me in many ways, as you heard. Uh, I got over that fear and got really, really into this book, and it was very cool. So if you want to buy The Certainties, if you want to read The Certainties, there's a link in the description of this episode. Uh, of course, among those links, you'll also find all of the things that allow you to find more episodes of Page Fright. So if you want to make this official, if you like what I'm doing here, it's super easy. You can subscribe to the show pretty much wherever you're listening. You can also leave a review, which helps amazingly. Um, it helps other people see the show more. Uh, and so that'll help more people find these writers in their work, which is really the end goal here. Um, if you want to listen to more Page Fright, and for some reason you can't find it on the app that you're using to listen to this, you can go to at PageFrightPod on Twitter, um, or you can go to theandrewfrench.com. That's about all I have for housekeeping stuff. I really appreciate you listening to this episode. We will be back soon with another interview that I'm very excited for. Um, so thanks again for listening. My name is Andrew French. I'm on Twitter at TheAndrewFrench. And this, of course, has been Page Fright. Page Fright.